Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Cully. And you join us for our September update. Admittedly, slightly late, I do apologise, but Simon particularly has been very busy with the virtual scientific conference for Arkham. But more on that in a minute. What we should probably first talk about, Simon, it's the 20th of October. And well, you're in a part of the country which is experiencing a COVID spike, may we call it, a second wave. Things that aren't really happening down south, but most certainly are affecting you up in the north in Manchester. Tell us what's going on. So, yep, it's uh, really busy. We've got a surge, really, I would say, is the, the word I would use in COVID numbers. And um, we're not where we were back in April, May yet, but we're certainly heading in that direction. And um, there's a lot of patients in hospital in the Northwest with COVID-19. ICU numbers are going up and our ICUs are full. They're not all full of COVID patients, but they're full but they're full all the time, aren't they? Let's face it. But I think we are going to have to see some fairly significant changes about how we deliver medicine in the Northwest. Yes, it's it's changed again. And I think we're all tired, Ian. <laughs> We've, it has um, been going on a while, hasn't it? This coronavirus yeah. business. I, I've been for a haircut, I think three times since this all started. There is a relevance to this. And I said to my hairdresser the first time, oh, don't worry, it'll all be done by Easter. And on the subsequent two events I've been, she has reminded me of this and therefore thinks I know absolutely nothing. But it does feel like it's been going on an incredibly long time. In Manchester, are you having to go back to what we did, well, six months ago? Are you shutting off to elective admissions or is it now business as usual and living with COVID as opposed to just it being COVID? We're on the cusp, I think. We've got what we do have now, why it's different is we have fairly good um, escalation plans. So we know that if if we reach the point where we've got this many patients in hospital, this many ICU beds occupied, those are the trigger factors which we've now all agreed for when we're going to stop elective surgery and things like that. So we're close at the moment, but we certainly Fiona, my wife's an ophthalmologist, she's continuing to um, operate and see patients in clinics. We're just going to have to see how it goes. I, th- I think it's a bit like the first one. We just don't know how far this is going to, to go with the winter. These respiratory diseases get worse in the winter. We we could be in for a rough ride. One of the things we've seen down in Southampton is more about staff having to get tested and actually leaving us a bit short on the old shop floor because they're waiting for a swab because their child maybe has had a respiratory illness. That's the thing that's really hitting us. We've seen a few cases in our hospital. It was zero for a period of time and we're sort of edging up now. But it is that thing of my child's had a cough. What do I do now? Uh, can I come to work? Uh, what's happening next sort of thing? And that's the uncertainty that we're dealing with. It's very complicated. We're having those things as well. Staff testing actually is a really complex area. Of course, the tests that we have at the moment have quite a few false positives. So people may be isolating when they don't actually have the disease or they're completely asymptomatic. That's an issue if you start testing a population with a very low frequency which mass testing does. We've got the issue, the potential um, moving to the point where we'll be testing all members of staff. And at that point, we could lose quite a lot of staff who with asymptomatic transmission. But that we'd have to do because there's also the risk and the concern that we've got nosocomial spread from staff to patients, patients to staff and around the wards. This is a very complicated time. The bottom line is in the Northwest, certainly the sickness absence rate for whatever reason, waiting for tests or actually being unwell, you know, in many places over 10%. And that's going to be a significant challenge going forward. And I suspect it's probably going to stay fairly similar over the winter. Well, unless we can find a way to get tested quicker and to nail down exactly what we're doing. But it is going to become a problem. I did tweet earlier this week to point people towards a podcast you did right at the beginning of this about how to keep fit, lessons from sports and exercise medicine. And I would encourage people to have a look at that again, because obviously if we can keep ourselves fit from other respiratory illnesses, and we can help our families stay fit and well, that will mean that we are protected from 
the need to test because if we don't get those viral illnesses, we won't have to test. So do look after yourselves, keep yourselves well. And there's some really good evidence-based stuff in there that you can do that's simple and cost-effective, I would suggest. Um, yeah, the evidence on some of them is, is stronger than, than others, but uh, I thought it was an incredibly useful conversation with John Rogers and colleagues about how athletes tried their very best to avoid respiratory tract infections because that's the commonest reason why they miss events. So that's Manchester. And no doubt by the time we podcast again, we will know something different. It's the same every time, isn't it? We think we know what's going on and then the world changes to a new normal. You have also been incredibly busy, Simon, helping with the Royal College Virtual Scientific Conference. And I think this really is worth a mention, not least because we're all really partners in this education sphere. But that was a massive undertaking. I was all really excited about coming up to the north to visit and attend the conference in person. And in the end, it happened virtually. But it really was a success. It was. I think we learned a lot from going to other conferences and we tried to do um, this in a way which engaged people online. And I think it works. The, the feedback so far has been amazing, actually. And um, we had some really incredible presentations, most of which were pre-recorded. So they were good quality. We didn't have many technical errors or issues and the, the quality was spectacular. And then there were some events around it, um, some social events that worked very well. We didn't try to be too ambitious. We had just had two tracks which were running. We learned a lot we're definitely going to do this again in the future. We had loads of people on the conference, twice as many as at any other previous Archem conference. So yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with it. We'll get more information and feedback as we go on, but it was great. And if you want, if you missed it, you can go and buy the box set, so to speak. So you can go and actually still attend the conference, not live, obviously, but you can get in and see all the content should you wish to do so. And if you were on the conference itself, you've still got access to that in, to those um, presentations for quite a long time to come. So that is still available. If you just log on to the Archem website, it's very easy to find. There is a charge, but that's understandable. Simon, do you think this is the end of conferences in person? Will there be any need to travel anymore for these things? There's been a move in this direction anyway. I think we've talked about this before, Ian, the, the Taylor Swift analogy, which is essentially that in the old days, you used to buy content in record format. When I was growing up, you had to buy stuff, the content. Now, these days, you can get your content online, but music stars and the music industry makes its money by the experience of being there and being part of a group. And so I think conferences are going to change. I think the, the basic lecture type information will be available online, but conferences need to move to a system whereby there's a reason for you to physically be there either the networking, workshops, masterclasses, that sort of thing. There'll still be some presentations as well, but we, I think we need, to, we need to up the engagement factor. I don't think it's right that people travel long distances to sit in a chair and just watch somebody talk. We need to do more than that. I mean, it's what Smack did originally, what Code is doing now. It's pushing that level of engagement and feeling of belonging to a group that we need to work with. All exciting stuff. And in the end, we've got to get some good out of this COVID business. And hopefully, hopefully we will soon be on our way out of this second, third, fourth, fifth wave. And we can think of other things. And on that note, although not quite on that note, let's have a look at the blog content for September. Not surprisingly, there are a couple of posts on there about coronavirus. Let's start with the first one from Dan Horner. This was the Roid to Recovery post that he did about the remap cap trial uh, published in JAMA. 
this seemed to be moderately helpful. I think so, yeah. The the Remap Cap trial is a platform adaptive trial, a bit like the recovery trial, but for ICU patients, really. And so they've got this platform of who do we include in the trial, what are the outcomes, how do we do the data monitoring, etc. But they're able to trial different drugs. And what they've done in this paper is they've released the data for steroids using uh, hydrocortisone rather than the dexamethasone that was used in the recovery trial. Um, But this is using hydrocortisone in uh, just under 400 patients who were on ITU with um, severe COVID-19. And what they found essentially is that amongst patients with severe COVID-19 and on a seven-day course, they're pretty certain, using some quite interesting Bayesian probabilistic statistics, they're very very certain, really, 93% chance that steroids are a good thing. And I think if we combine that with what we know from recovery trial, which was also involved some patients who were ventilated, I think this just reinforces that, that steroids are a good thing in severe COVID-19 pneumonitis. We've half mentioned Bayesian theory already when talking about testing for coronavirus in an asymptomatic population on a large scale. And again, if if no more comes out of coronavirus than this. Hopefully these ideas of how we use tests, how we go about these things in the future is something that we really will take away from it. We've been banging on about it at St. Emlyn's for a while, but if it's not something you're familiar with and you're not quite sure what we mean when we talk about Bayesian theory, do look. There's stuff on our blog site and there's other places you can go to get this sort of thing. Lots of FOMED will talk all about it. So worth filling that gap if it is a knowledge gap for you because it will impact on every part of your daily life at work. We started with that trial and then something unrelated to coronavirus and that was about TXA in severe head injury. Something that we've been talking about before, we had Crash 3 and TXA is one of those drugs which, well, I think we believe in, we seem to believe in. We certainly do in the UK, we make a big deal about making sure that patients with major trauma get TXA early. It's even part of the major trauma guideline, best practice. Did this trial actually confirm that for you, Simon? Well, it's an interesting one. We, we reviewed CRASH-3, which was the very large RCT of tranexamic acid in traumatic brain injury earlier in the year. And our feeling was that it, on the balance of probabilities, it really did suggest that in mild to moderate brain injury, and certainly with those who have evidence of things like cerebral contusions or blood in their brain, who aren't severely injured, so the GCS above eight, and with functioning pupils, it almost certainly has benefit. Now, that's a controversial view in some respects. Um, if you're on the other side of the Atlantic, it, you probably don't believe a word of what I've just said, and you think it's heresy. And it does seem to be one of these incredibly, oh gosh, it's one of these situations which is just incredibly divisive. We have really clever people reading the same paper and coming to different conclusions. And I, I've got a theory about why that might be. But in, in Crash 3, they found um, roughly a a a small difference in mortality. This is a different paper. This is a US paper where they compared tyranexamic acid um, in traumatic brain injured patients. And I've got a decent sized study, 1000 patients you think, but CRASH-3 was a lot more than that. And they found, according to this, when they followed them up at six months, there was no difference in their traumatic brain outcome as measured by the Glasgow outcome scale. The problem I've got with this is there's twofold really. There's actually loads of things that I've got problems with, but the big ones are, number one, um, the actual mortality difference was the same pretty much as in Crash 3, so about a 2% mortality difference. That kind of supports the fact. Now, that this study is too small to detect that difference, so the fact they didn't find one doesn't really surprise me at all. And the fact that there's no difference at six months, that's possibly a survivor benefit. You're more likely to be alive at six months 
and you have the same level of um, on average disability. So that all to me suggests that this is a positive trial or rather it was a trial in keeping with the results that we had from crash three. It's new data. All data is good. It's all helpful. If I had one thing that I would love the authors to do is I'd like them to show as a reanalysis where they excluded the patients with severe head injury, whom we know don't benefit from TXA from the results of crash three. I'd be really interested to see what the results of the trial were for that. But that wasn't in their statistical plan and they haven't done it. That's fair enough. And like all treatments that we give, it's always a balance, isn't it, between harm and benefit. People say risk and benefit, but it's not risk, is it? It's harm. It's not the risk of harm. It's actually something bad happening. And we tend to have to balance that all the time with the different treatments we give in the emergency department in medicine as a whole. Often we'll be giving patients antibiotics for things where we weigh up that they may have something wrong with them that they need antibiotics for, but we seem to forget the harm of that. TXA, to my mind, it doesn't seem to have a huge amount of harm related to it, and it may have benefit. I suppose the only things that we don't see are the unseen harms of, well, if you have to draw up the TXA, does that mean you don't have time to draw up something else? And and there, there's all those things that go on with all sorts of treatments we give and all sorts of tests we do. But I think in the UK, we're, we're pretty signed up to TXA as an idea. And like many things, I don't think it's going to to leave us in the UK now for a long period of time. It'll just be a question of whether the world joins us or stays where it is. I think you're right. And the harms thing, uh, people are often worried about the um, potential increase in VTE um, problems. The only study which has shown an increase in VTE so far was the HALT-IT trial of TXA in severe GI bleeds. Um, but that's really a very different group of patients. In the trauma trials, it's never been demonstrated. Now, RCTs aren't the best thing in the world to detect things like harms. So we will need to have a look at that. We'll have to look at post-trial um, monitoring and things along those lines. But so far, I agree with you. I think the the potential benefits versus the very tiny, what appears to be very tiny levels of risk, suggests that on the balance of probabilities, we should be giving it. And that's the position I think that we're in at the moment. But as we've always said on the podcast, Ian, if somebody comes along with a better trial, that changes our minds and gives a different answer, we are very open to seeing it. But at the moment, the best available evidence suggests give it. So that's TXA and severe head injury, a new post to add to our knowledge from Crash 3. And then the final Journal Club post for the month, it's been a quite quiet month, really. I think uh, a little bit of catching up and other activities we've talked about. Is this, now, do we say Isaric? Is that the risk prediction tool? Is that how we're going to say this particular acronym? I think it's Isaric. I suppose that's a potato, potato, scone, scone moment. Uh, so we'll go with whatever you want, really, because, well, you know, we should. What do you think of the Isaric Isaric scale? So this is an interesting one. This is another NIHR, so National Institute for Health Research study, which has been running in the UK during the COVID pandemic. And just a little shout out to what an amazing job the UK has done in terms of research by putting together massive trials at scale, at pace, to look at the treatments, the observations, the diagnostics, and in this case, the risk scoring for uh, COVID-19. What we've seen in the rest of the world is lots and lots of small trials, small centres, small groups. Well, I say small, you know, hundreds of patients, but nothing that compares to this trial of 35,463 patients. 
That's over 35,000 patients for a disease which didn't really exist in the UK <laughs> at the beginning of the year. No, it's absolutely incredible what these people have done. And essentially, this is an observational trial taking patients who are being admitted into hospital and looking at what factors and predict things like mortality. They've gathered all that data from all the people who come in um, in the, the various different sites that they've been running this in. They've put it through the statistical machine, so to speak, and they've come up with a stratification score, which looks at things like age, sex, comorbidities, uh, the respiratory rate, their oxygen saturation, some blood tests such as the RIA and the CRP. And on the basis of that, you can get a score that will give you an idea of the, the, the likely mortality. So for instance, a score of 9 to 14 um, has a, a mortality of 34.9%. Um, and that you could get, so what you could get for a 9, so that'd be a 70-year-old coming in, gets a score of 6. So they've got a comorbidity 1, that's, well, I'm going to go up to 7. If the respiratory rate's 20 to 20, over 30, then they're already in the high-risk group. So it gives you an idea of what that's going to uh, look like. Now, this is really good data. It will also develop as more information comes in, more analysis, and they're actually continuing to run this kind of data as time goes by. So we'll get more information and it may be better refined. Now, the question I've got with this or the concern, I suppose, is that this trial was clearly done on patients who are admitted into hospital. But what I'm seeing is people trying to use it now for what do I do in the community? Or is this now a score I can use to safely discharge patients? And I'm always a little bit concerned with that because it wasn't really generated in that group of patients. This was a group of patients who were admitted to hospital. I think we've got to be a little bit cautious about how we use it. Clearly, if you're scoring high, then don't go home, would be my suggestion. Also, it's been um, considered about whether or not this is a group of patients in whom you might want to give steroids to if they come out with a high score. Well, that's not true either, because in the recovery trial, we showed that it's only really a benefit of people who are oxygen dependent. So this is a really interesting score. It's evidence-based. It's a fantastic piece of research. But we've got to be careful about how we use it and make sure that we don't just use it in situations, ideas and circumstances where it wasn't really derived. And we do always talk on St. Emelins about, well, we mentioned the end of the better ground. There's a lot to be said for clinical gestalt and that feeling about a patient that you get as an experienced clinician about are they poorly or not? And that adds in to the use of a risk group like this. And again, that would be your pretest probability. If you see the patient and then you add this, what is in, in essence a test and then you get a post-test probability of whether you, I don't know, need them to be admitted to hospital. So none of these things act in isolation. These are all combinations. And this is why we need people, human beings to do medicine. And it's why we can't be replaced by computers just yet. Although with the advent of AI, maybe one day we will. And I will then go into, I don't know, farming, although that, that also seems like quite hard work. The worry with this one, though, Ian, is I've got quite a lot of points before I even get COVID. That's what worries me. So I'm, I'm looking at, I'm definitely washing my hands and wearing a mask. Well, at my place now, we've been given a, a COVID age and we're now being risk scored according to our COVID age. And they've got a risk score. I have to admit, I haven't looked into it where it's derived from, which adds in predisposing factors that may be a risk for you. And then about how risky it may be for you to work in certain areas of the hospital, uh, low, moderate or high. So there are these things that we're trying to do to make sense of this risk to make sure that people are safe while they're still delivering healthcare. Uh, but Simon, I know how fast you can ride a bicycle. Uh, you're fitter than most 25-year-olds, so I really don't think you need to worry just yet. But you wear a mask, wash your hands, because it is good anyway. And at St Emlyn's, we would very heartily recommend that you continue to do what you are told to do by the scientists 
because science is important. Uh, Simon, that is it for September. We did mention also CODA as part of a blog post. And the guys in Australia and, well, worldwide have been doing ongoing, amazing work to keep going with what would have been a continuation of a conference. And you were part of that as well this week. Yeah, so I did the CODA Educate one, which was great, talking about how education and science and the belief and how our use of evidence-based medicine has shifted during the, the COVID pandemic and how... More than ever, we need to maintain the principles of evidence-based medicine and look at the science and be sceptical and be critical and be fully aware of how strong the evidence is. I think we've seen a, a big shift over the last six months. When we started off, we were pretty much, gosh, we'd take any old evidence, wouldn't we? We'd just, you know, a couple of patients seen right on the back of a fag packet, publish it, and we'd believe it. I think we're now at a stage where we're getting some decent data through. And I think we definitely need to really put our, our critical appraisal hats back on and be quite cautious about how we decide to change therapies and management. And if you haven't read the paper written by Simon and colleagues and you're a member of the Royal College or a subscriber to the EMJ, it's time to reach for it and remove it from its plastic wrapping because that was published, I think, this month in the paper version. So go away, have a look at that and have a read when we should change and the evidence we need to do. So, Simon, that is just about it for September. We will be back very soon with a podcast about October when I dare say we will either be anticipating or reviewing what may have happened in the United States, as there will be, I understand, an election there. And so we'll be thinking of you all, America, and what you may be deciding over the next few weeks. It's a big decision, I think. And uh, we'll keep remembering that science is important. And Simon, thanks again for joining us for the podcast. And we'll chat again next month. Yeah, speak to you soon, Ian. 